Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today we're going to be telling you part two of our episode series on Richard Trenton Chase, a.k.a. the vampire killer of Sacramento. Support yourselves a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more crime over coffee content by signing up for our patreon you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content to check out this opportunity and sign up for the crime over coffee patreon visit www.patreon.com slash crime over coffee pod thank you again for all of your support we just want to go ahead and give a brief warning at the beginning of this episode once again If you guys listened to part one, you guys are already familiar with how violent Richard Chase's crimes are towards humans and to animals. This episode is also going to touch on a lot of those violent tendencies that he had. So we want to give you a warning prior to jumping into it. There is going to be violence towards children, adults, and animals in this episode. So if you guys want to skip this episode, we totally understand. If not, then sit back and... Don't enjoy the ride. So as we mentioned up front in this episode, um, this is part two of our mini episode series on the serial killer Richard Trenton Chase. So if you did not listen to part one, we recommend going back and listening to it just so you know what's going on in this episode. But just to recap where we left off at this point, we know of Richard Chase's two victims, Teresa Wallen and Ambrose Griffin. And at this point, um, we know that the FBI gets involved. This is obviously turning out to be a pretty serious case with somebody who is likely a serial killer. And it it doesn't seem like this person's going to stop based on the violence of his crimes. From some eyewitness accounts, we have somebody who was a male, maybe looked a little unkempt, dirty, and was probably acting a little strange. What ultimately, unfortunately, leads up to the capture is another murder that comes up that really starts to connect the dots. And this is a mass murder. And again, as we said up front, this is a pretty violent episode in a violent case. So just a warning for you guys. Um, I'm not going to get into too much detail. Everybody knows how to Google. If you want to look it up, you can. But just for the purpose of uh, this story, we're not going to get too much into the details. Uh, frankly, because I I don't want to say it, and I don't think everyone needs to hear it. Four days after Teresa Wallen is murdered, on January 27th, 1978, a neighbor had entered the home of Evelyn Muroth, and what they discovered was something horrifying. 38-year-old Evelyn Muroth, her one-year-old nephew David, her six-year-old son Jason, and a friend of hers, Dan Meredith, 52, had all passed away. Um, they had been murdered at the hands of Richard Trace. What they determined to have happened, Evelyn at the time was taking a bath while um, her friend Dan was watching the children. And as Richard Chase entered the home, Dan had gone into the hallway to check on 
what the heck was happening. And he was shot in the head at point blank range with a 22 caliber. And he then went on to murder Jason and David. And then at this point, he made his way to Evelyn and shot her as well. He went on to mutilate Evelyn's body. There was a sexual assault or rape involved, and he actually ended up drinking her blood. And if you listen to part one, you know this is something that has come up time and time again with Richard Chase. He has this weird obsession with blood, and it's very violent. And unfortunately, that was also the case with the murder of Evelyn as well. While all this was happening, at some point, a six-year-old girl that was supposed to have a play date um, at this house with the kids had actually knocked on the door, and this startled Richard Chase, and he took off. He had taken um, Dan's car and his wallet, and the little girl saw this, so she goes to a neighbor, and she's like, hey, something's up. And the neighbor, as I mentioned up top, came into the home where he did discover the bodies and then called authorities. Good for the six-year-old girl to go and report it because I don't feel like most six-year-olds would be that observant that something weird is happening. And so if she hadn't have gone to somebody and told them, then this probably could have gone unnoticed for a quite a long period of time. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I really don't know the extent of what she saw at the time, but it was enough that she, she knew something was off. Once the police arrive to the home, they see a horrible scene, as I mentioned earlier. And like I said, I'm not going that deep into it. Other things they did find was handprints and imprints of the soles of shoes in Evelyn's blood. From this, they do find... Um, that Richard had left with David's body and they did find his body um, at a nearby church. But they now have, like I said, handprints and imprints of the shoes. And at this point, there's already some FBI agents involved. And as I mentioned, they have a sketch, they have a profile. And as I said earlier, they were pretty sure it was going to be somebody who was continuing to kill. So they were really trying to nail down the identity of this perpetrator. If you all listened to part one, you heard Erica talk about Nancy Holden. And she actually was a big part of cracking this case because she was able to identify that it was Richard Chase that she had had that interaction with that Erica mentioned in part one. How lucky was it that he happened to interact with somebody he'd gone to school with that could give a positive identification to this man? No kidding. And, you know, with all the murders going around and people hearing about it, they're able to connect this, not to mention the handprints, the shoe prints. And, you know, it doesn't take a lot of digging into his history to connect some of the other items going on, such as the drinking of the blood and the cannibalism. Another thing police figure out when they start looking into Richard Chase is that he actually lived really close to most of the murder sites. I saw an article that said within a mile of most of them. And so that was just another connection. They look into him and see that he is registered to have a 22 caliber gun. And this matches the gun that was used at all of the murder scenes. What police do or the FBI agents do is that they go to Chase's apartment and they're basically like, we want to talk to you. And he says, no. 
And so they just kind of wait for him to leave and then end up arresting him when they see him carrying a bloodstained box and seeing blood on his jacket and his shoes. I think that's pretty suspicious. So I think that they had pretty good reasoning to arrest him in this moment. No kidding. I mean, at this point, it's all adding up. They have this eyewitness testimony. They're looking into his background. They have the gun registered. And now he's walking out with blood stained items. I mean, I don't know how much more suspicious you could get. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of things adding up here against him. And I do have to say I'm impressed with how diligent the police are being in investigating this because we've seen sometimes where certain things just get like slip by or whatever but it seems like they're really putting everything together and they're working together as a team to bring this violent criminal in sure and you know let me just give a little shout out to two fbi agents that i saw that were involved in this case russ verpigel and robert Ressler. and i know they were pretty pretty heavily involved in this case and definitely were responsible for some of the leads in tracking down richard chase Um, Robert Ressler comes in a little bit later because he does some interviews with Richard Chase later on. And I think I saw, and don't quote me on this, and if I'm wrong, don't come for me. I just briefly saw an article and I didn't open it. He might have also interviewed Jeffrey Dahmer at some point. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I saw just an article and I was searching. Of course, it could have been a misread or what have you. But, you know, if any of you guys want to check it out and let me know if that's right or wrong, totally I'm interested. I just didn't look that much further into it. At this point, detectives, FBI agents, um, everyone basically who's involved in this decides, yeah, obviously we need to check out Richard Chase's apartment. They go in, they do find the gun that is eventually linked to the murders, that 22 caliber, but they find a lot of other really concerning items as well. And again, I think up front, we're saying this whole episode is a trigger warning, but there's more to come and I'm about to say some of it. So heads up. They find a 12 inch butcher knife, rubber boots, animal collars, blenders containing blood, several dishes in the fridge that have body parts in them, bloodstained rags, and among all these things, Dan Meredith's wallet. Additionally, something that's really eerie and really creepy, he has a calendar hanging up and it would mark the word today on certain dates and they find that these dates match up with some of the murders, the Wallen and Miroth murders. And there were around 40 future dates marked with that same word today. I don't like that. For many reasons. It sounds like he had no intention on stopping. I feel like this is a really interesting case because he's obviously a serial killer. I mean, we've established that. But he and he's escalating. We're seeing the escalation. We're seeing the shorter amount of time in between each kill. But we're also seeing like organization and planning with all of it, which is what is even weirder to me. Like, I feel like his crimes are so sporadic he's kind of like ted bundy in the aspect that he falls into two categories because he's not completely organized he is a little sporadic and unorganized in the sense that when he showed up to kill evelyn i don't think that he was expecting there to be three other people in that home that he was also going to have to attack but he ended up like i don't want to use the word adapting but i don't know what other word to use he but he 
was a organized enough that he was able to do that. And then he's organized enough that he has this whole plan for his future victims. And it's creepy and gross. And it's just odd to me because he seems so disorganized with everything else that he does and just so solely focused on the blood aspect of a kill that I don't think he necessarily, I, I wouldn't have guessed he was planning out a whole lot of things. I think that's a good point. You know, whenever I was researching this and I'm sure you came across it too. You're reading through the crimes and we really just kind of touched the surface of them. And I don't want to sound like a repeated record, but there's a reason for it. But it is very, it's violent and it seems very kind of, I don't like to use the word sporadic, but it seems, as Erica said, unorganized. It kind of seems like he falls into this like weird psychotic trance and he just does these horrible horrible things and as we said in part one and I'm going to talk about it a little bit again too later he's just kind of showing up and knocking on doors and seeing who he answers so it's weird to think about that it's like maybe the day is premeditated but yeah it doesn't seem like he puts any sort of thought process into who the victim is going to be so I find it so interesting that he puts so much thought process into the date did you find anything about, like, why those dates were so important to him? I can't imagine they were with that many. I mean, it had to have been random. And maybe some of that was a little bit of fantasizing. Like, you know, I can't imagine somebody would even physically be able to do that much. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't want to gloss over the fact that this was, like, a truly, truly dangerous and terrible person and Erica and I have been talking about him and it's come up, we're saying like, maybe even worse than Dahmer. Like, this man was seriously messed up and everything he did was so horrific that, like I said earlier, truly F him. <laughs> like, not a good person by any means. Well, and I feel like, too, you know, he's planning this out, right? I f it has to be a cockiness aspect of him. Like he just assumed he wasn't going to get caught for these crimes. So he mm -hmm. wanted to be prepared for these future dates so that he knew what he was doing. And because I think he was so much unaware of reality, he was so disassociated to reality mm -hmm. that he just felt like he could schedule these crimes in the same way that, you know, we schedule a coffee date with a friend. Like, he was just yeah. throwing it on his calendar as if it was a normal everyday event and that nothing could interrupt that, which is just an additional creepy and sociopathic capacity to it, I guess. You said cocky, but I thought, you know, he's leaving his footprints, his handprints, he's using the same gun. Like, I think it's, to me, it came across as sloppy because he can't even control it. So it's interesting that we kind of picked up on it differently because we don't always do that. We don't always, we do sometimes, but I like... I feel the cockiness from, like, the fact that he feels like he can leave those handprints and use the same gun and be sloppy because he feels so confident in what he's doing that he's not going to get caught. So I kind of see both sides. Like, he is disorganized and he is sloppy in his killings, but it's because he's so cocky and because he feels like he's just not going to get caught no matter if they know who he is or, like, whose handprints they are, like... 
You just felt like you could continue going. Let's come back to that. I definitely have some more thoughts on it, but I think after I talk about something a little bit later, it might be kind of interesting to bring up the conversation and further it there. It was after his arrest that police and FBI do connect him with the murder of Ambrose Griffin as well. It's at this point that they have him in custody and they're really ready to pin him down for some of these murders. In 1979, Richard Chase did go to trial for six counts of first-degree murder, and he pled not guilty. Part of this plea was because the defense attorneys were really trying to, well, they were basically trying to make it so he couldn't get the death penalty. They know he's obviously going to at least be in prison the rest of his life, but they're trying to see if they can get the death penalty off the table. And so they're pleading insanity, and they're trying to listen his charges down to second degree murder saying he's got this mental illness history and that there was no premeditation to the murders. And, you know, of course that's interesting in the fact that Eric and I were just talking about this. Was there premeditation? Well, clearly there's a little bit if he's writing the dates on the calendar. So it wasn't until, I don't know, I really started looking into this that I really struggled with defense attorneys and their, purpose necessarily because of cases like this where they're saying that a man that has done all of these horrific crimes does not deserve the death penalty because x y and z once we started i don't even know if it was necessarily when we started the podcast or when i was doing my degree that i started looking more into exactly what a defense lawyer's position is and a defense attorney so their main goal is to make sure that the legal system is being upheld and to make sure that the jury is proving a crime beyond a matter of a doubt, right? So, and to make sure that the laws and the consequences that are already set in place are what's being withheld in these cases. I felt like I needed to say that because even as Abby was saying it in my mind, I'm thinking this, I can't believe anybody would stand up there and be able to defend Richard Chase. However, it's not defending the crimes that he committed. It's defending Richard Chase with the laws that are currently in place at the time of this trial. I don't agree. I think that he 100% should have been given the death penalty. And I don't know where this ends, Abby. This is up to you to tell me. But I don't agree with them fighting against it. But I wanted to point out to give you guys a better understanding of why the defense attorneys would be giving this plea, this description, this this argument against what could possibly come for Richard Jace. Sure. You know, that's a good point these people are doing their job, you know, just like any other. And I have said once, and I will say it forever, I would never, ever, 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 ever want to be a lawyer. I think that's probably so hard. I couldn't, and for the simple reasons, I couldn't defend someone like this, you know? And thank goodness we have people who can do these jobs and judges and, you know, everything, all these professions that fall into place to make sure, hopefully ensure that, the legal system is brought out like supposed to be. And I'll just move on from that because we know that doesn't always happen. <laughs> Let me say they talk about this basically for an hour. They deliberate for an hour and they're like, no, he is legally sane. He is fit to stand trial. And with this, the trial pursues. And 
Um, something I saw that I thought was interesting is more than 100 witnesses take the stand, which seems like quite a few. But there is, I guess, a lot of entities involved, a lot of people who could testify to what kind of person Richard Chase was. I'm assuming that they could have brought in people from his stays at the institutions, some of his family members, family members of the victims, possibly teachers from high schools. Because as we talked about in part one, a lot of his violent tendencies and sadistic tendencies really started when he was a child. So I feel like they could go back a long ways to bring mm-hmm. witnesses into this. Absolutely. And I want to say, too, one of the people who were involved in this, and I, he, I'm pretty sure took the witness stand, David Wallen, who was the wife of Teresa. And I did find an interview with him where he gave a lot of information about just you know, the horrifying experience he went through, his wife went through, and everything thereafter. And he gives some information about the trial that I'm going to include in here. And his interview that I um, read from was with the U.S. Sun. It's a newspaper. But he was talking about Richard Chase during the trial, saying that he refused to make eye contact with him throughout all of it. And it went on for like four months in that he described him as, quote, just gone like a comatose stoner, end quote. And I think that's interesting to look at how he is just disconnecting from the situation. On May 8th, after five hours of deliberations, the jury does come back with a guilty verdict on all six counts of first-degree murder. And it is eventually decided that It is eventually decided that he would be put to death in the gas chamber at San Quentin Penitentiary. I have to say this is one of those cases where I agree with the punishment. I think the punishment fits the crime in this situation. If we could do a lot worse to him and it still be legal, I would be willing to consider that as well. However, Mm -hmm. this is the most that the legal system can uphold at this point, so I agree with what the judge has sentenced him to, which is rare. And something I said to Erica earlier that I don't think I said while we're recording is I had a little comment about Richard's mom that comes up that I kind of wanted to put in here um, just to give you an idea of maybe who she is or kind of where Richard was growing up, I guess. And again, this comes from that interview with um, David. And he says that he had this, he calls it a verbal altercation with Richard Chase's mom during the trial. And she basically says, you know, why didn't your dog protect you guys? And then David's like, he basically said, quote, why didn't you protect us? You sick individual. You raised that you raise that, end quote. And as we know, you can't always control what's going to happen when you're raising a kid. But for her to come at him like that is beyond messed up. Yeah, I'm not a fan of Richard's mom. If you listen to part one, she basically stopped him from taking medication that could have, I'm not going to say it could have prevented everything, but it could have led to a better life for Richard if maybe he had been on some of this psychotropic medication. So I didn't agree with her decisions in part one. I don't agree with her decisions in part two. It almost sounds like she's defending her son, which irks me beyond belief. Yeah, there's no defense in this one. 
you know, maybe there's some type of gray area in some situations and some of the cases we covered, but for this one specifically, no, absolutely not. No, just no. I mentioned something earlier and I know Erica touched on it, but we're going to revisit some of the interviews that that were had with Richard Chase following his conviction. And one of those things I have up here first, but I know Erica mentioned, he kind of picked his victims based on what doors were unlocked. He would just kind of go up to a house. If it was locked, he felt, oh, I'm not supposed to enter. If it was unlocked, unfortunately, what pursuit is what we've already told you. A few other things I want to talk about, and we've mentioned some of them before as well, but he has this obsession with blood, right? A lot of this stems from him thinking that like he he's being influenced by Nazi UFOs and aliens. And this is coming from him in his interviews. And they're ordering him basically to kill others and saying his blood is turning to powder. And so in his head, he's hearing, I need to drink more blood to replenish the fact that my blood is turning into powder. There was something weird with like soap dishes. If they were dry on the bottom, he was good. If they weren't, it meant he needed more blood or something. With all that, it's interesting. And I'm going to pull it back to some stuff we talked about in part one. And that includes him making comments about thinking somebody stole his arteries and that his like cranial bones were shifting and his heart was shrinking. It kind of like falls into this weird like psychosis of aliens or UFOs or whatever being involved and his blood turning to powder. It seems like if this is all true in his mind, of course, that he's making up this whole scenario where this compulsion is in reaction to something that's happened to him. I think that's completely possible. I I do think that with all of these things that we're putting together, you know, all these delusions that he's very clearly having and exhibiting is evidence pointing to the fact that he needed some sort of mental health care. He needed some sort of help, um, whether that came from a medication or from a therapist themselves. But at one point, he, prior to committing any violent crimes towards humans, he had been sent to a treatment facility. I fully believe that because it was the 1950s, the 1960s, they just didn't know how to properly handle that and how to properly give him care. Not saying that we're perfect now, but I think that over the years, people have learned appropriate ways to handle some of these psychotic delusions that people can exhibit. And I think that not that want to defend Richard Chase at all. However, I do truly feel that if he had had some sort of intervention earlier on in life, maybe we could have avoided some of these horrific crimes that he had committed. Absolutely. They understood clearly when he was institutionalized that he should be on medication. And they did put him on medication when he was in prison as well. Something just kind of as a side note, I want to put in there. A lot of the prisoners apparently knew of his crimes and were kind of scared of this guy. And so they they were encouraging him to kill himself. And following, I don't know if it's that or a mixture of some other things, Richard Chase had been um, kind of, he'd been receiving medication, as I said, but he'd been kind of saving some to the side And he did eventually commit suicide by taking a lot of these pills. And he was found dead in his cell in December of 1979. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.